0: The following podcast was produced by Latter-day Radio, originally broadcast on KLO in Salt Lake City, Utah. For more information, visit latterdayradio.com.
1: We're back on Latter-day Radio on 1430 KLO World Class Talk. So when, when you talk about African Americans and the priesthood in the LDS Church, one of the first questions ought to be, Let's look at the origin of this whole idea that blacks, African-Americans, however you want to describe them, can't have the priesthood. And and my question is,
2: is this a policy, Martin, or is this a revelation? Can you you dig
1: into this for us? That's an easy one. And and I'll jump on that straight out of the chute. You can search and research and look everywhere you want to look. I've done that. Many, many other people have. There is no revelation. And logically, of course, there couldn't be, because in the early days of the LDS faith, there were blacks who did hold the priesthood, and that would be contradictory if somehow there had been a a revelation. So this was a policy shift, and we'll delve into why it came about a little bit later but but first of all as a broad principle it's an important question to ask where did the idea come from that blacks of african descent can't have the priesthood is this something that the lds church came up with and the answer is no the lds church did not come up with this the idea comes from interpretations of slavery, interpretations of teachings that are found in the Bible, teachings of Islam and passages in the Quran, and frankly traditions in different cultures. Slavery has been practiced in almost every country in the world, and it's happened from ancient times until the present day. Until about a hundred years ago, slavery was legal In France, Scandinavia, China, Japan, Korea, Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, India, and it happened among Native Americans, they had slaves. Uh, Africans, of course, did in Africa and in every single country in, in, in Central and South America. Slavery was rampant. One of the other sources, other than tradition, and, uh, and, and slavery in different countries that's often overlooked is that the Old Testament talks about slavery. It says that slaves are be, to be treated well, implying that it's okay if you have a slave, as long as you treat them okay. So that's part of the, uh, of the Mosaic Law? Exodus chapter 21, verses 2 through 6, talks about being sure that you treat your slaves appropriately. Leviticus chapter 25, verses 39 through 55, and Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 12 through 8, all have this idea of slavery. And it's not a question of, is it okay? It's, be sure to treat your slaves well. And it's not just an Old Testament concept. The New Testament also reiterates that slaves are be. Uh, are to be treated kindly and fairly. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, and 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse one all talk about that. As a matter of fact, let me just ask this
2: question. Uh, we read in uh, the revelation that Joseph Smith received on December the 25th, um, 1838. Uh, was that the revelation on the Civil War? But... Um, I may have my dates mixed up. But he also said, and there was another little sentence somewhere in there that says, and slaves shall rise up against their masters. Sometimes we think that referred to American slaves in the United States before the Civil War rising up against their masters, which happened in some cases. But I believe that was something more global where slaves slaves throughout the world in the 19th century these colonial uprisings and uh, independence movements—they started in the 19th century and they continued well into the 20th century. So, uh, it's a—it's a change in uh, thought and certainly human rights that have occurred in uh, in the last 150 years.
1: Very, very, very true. Um, there have been huge shifts. Today's Muslim Brotherhood, which is all over in the Middle East, defends slavery, explaining, well, its it's, um, current leader explained that Islam gives spiritual enfranchisement to slaves. And in earlier periods in Islam, the slave was exalted to a noble state of humanity, uh, according to Muslim Brotherhood. There are others in the Islamic faith that believe slavery is appropriate. Today, today, when we speak in 2018, there are more slaves today than at any previous time in history, approximately 45 million. And you say, how is that possible when it's been abolished? Well, populations in the world have increased. So even though it's prohibited in many places, it's it's still alive and well, sadly, in many places in the world. So where did the idea that blacks of African descent can't have the priesthood? Well, came from the Bible, came from the Old and the New Testament, came from the Quran, came from history. In Genesis, the justification for it was often uh, chapter 4, verses 11 and 16 that talks about a so-called curse of Cain. Uh, Cain was cursed for killing his brother Abel. And this is just in in Genesis, right? Yes, and there are those who surmised that this was a a black skin. The text does not say that. This is something that that early uh, Christians and before them Jews just surmised, and and that was one of the justifications for, for having that. There's this description that a mark would come upon Cain, but it doesn't say what the mark is. And since the 1400s, virtually all Protestant denominations, Lutherans, Anglicans, Calvinists, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Baptists, pre-evangelical churches, Methodists, Pentecostals, Charismatics, even the Quakers, the Society of Friends, Seventh-day Adventists, and others taught that the mark of Cain was a dark skin. And so the idea that this concept that some in the LDS faith had was unique to it is just flat-out not true, and that's an important point because often when the LDS Church is criticized for excluding blacks from the priesthood, there's just never mentioned that this is rampant throughout virtually all of of Christianity, and and it's important to know that that is just not true. Um, Even the Catholic diocese and others until the 60s and 70s, would not administer sacraments to ordain blacks to uh, the priesthood. So this is not a unique thing to the LDS church, church at all. So that's my first major point. Well, and, and I would assume that if we didn't know
2: and we hadn't done the homework, whether it was a, uh, a policy or, or a revelation, we'd be reluctant to change it until we knew that it in fact was just a
1: policy and not a revelation. Would, would, you, would you say so? True. One of the questions that often comes up is well, it was just policy. Why didn't they change it? Why they need a revelation? Uh, and the answer that I've always given to that is you can have a revelation to change a lot of things, uh, whether or not it's a policy or a pre existing revelation. There's no no requirement that that somehow uh, policies are just changed with the stroke of a pen and, and revelations are only changed with another revelation. That's not the way it usually works. So another fascinating question is, did the LDS church ever believe in this Curse of Cain idea? And the short answer is that I'm sure there are some individuals in the church that did, but there has never been that belief as a matter of doctrine. It's just flat out not there. And this is from the earliest times, and, and let me s- cite a source that proves that. 2 Nephi chapter 26, verse 33, and, and this, this was... Produced, translated by Joseph Smith in 1829. This is a year before the church was even formed. Quote The Lord inviteth them all to come unto him and partake of his goodness, and he denieth none that come unto him, black and white, bond and free, male and female, and he remembereth the heathen and all are alike unto God. So there it is. Uh, it couldn't be clearer than that, it, could it? It could not. If you're black, you are alike unto God, just like everyone else. And that's the crux of where the idea came about in the LDS faith, that blacks were to be treated like everyone else. And during Joseph Smith's lifetime, that indeed was the case. So one of the fascinating questions is that, of course, in 1978, the first presidency announced a revelation that ended the practice of blacks not having the priesthood. And the question is, could blacks have the priesthood before that 78 revelation? Well, by policy, no, but by practice... There were times when, yes, they did. And I mentioned before that that was the case during Joseph Smith's lifetime. There are a number of examples of this. Elijah Abel, who was born in 1810, he died in 1884. He joined the church and was ordained an elder on March 3rd of 1836, He was born a slave in Maryland. He escaped slavery on the Underground Railroad in Upper Canada. He was baptized in the LDS faith in 1832 by a missionary named Ezekiel Roberts. He was ordained an elder on March 3rd, 1836 by Zebedee Coltrane, a very famous early LDS apostle. And in December of 1836, Joseph Smith ordained him as 70, and he received a patriarchal blessing from Joseph Smith Sr. And so here's a guy who had the priesthood during the time of, of Joseph Smith in the church.
0: This faith affirming podcast is a production of Latter day Radio. For the enlightenment and illumination of its audience. Originally broadcast on KLO Radio in Salt Lake City, Utah. More faith-affirming podcast content from Latter-day Radio coming your way. Stick around.
2: Welcome back to Latter-day Radio in 1430 KLO World Class Talk. Last segment, Martin and I were discussing the established historical fact that it was church policy and not revealed doctrine that kept worthy men of African descent from receiving the priesthood. But that all changed 40 years ago today. And as we discussed earlier, even today that event is still seared in the minds of many Latter-day Saints. So Martin, let's jump back into our time-traveling DeLorean and look at what led up to that momentous announcement.
1: Elijah Abel is one of the earliest members, black members of the LDS faith, African-American members of the LDS faith, who received the priesthood. And he was uh, ordained to the priesthood by Zebedee Coltrane, and he was ordained as 70 by Joseph Smith. In 1841, when Joseph Smith was arrested in Quincy, Illinois, Elijah was one of seven elders who was chosen and set out from Nauvoo to rescue the prophet. He was a carpenter. He worked on the Nauvoo Temple. He performed baptisms for the dead in Nauvoo. He served a mission. He was a church missionary. He married a black LDS convert named Marianne Adams in 1847, their first child, was named Moroni Abel. So here's a guy who was very devoted to the church. He was a lifelong friend of Joseph Smith and Joseph Smith Sr. And he was actually at the bedside of Joseph Smith Sr. when he passed away. Mary, his wife, and their children were members of the Appleton Harmon Pioneer Company, uh, and they migrated to Utah. When he was here, he managed a hotel. He remained a member of the First Quorum of the Seventy. In 1884, he served a final church mission to Canada, during which he fell ill and died uh, shortly after returning home to Utah. He's buried in the Salt Lake City Cemetery. So here's an African-American priesthood holder, who was highly regarded in the church. And and he's not the only one. In 1842, a man named Walker Lewis converted from the Episcopal Church to become a Latter-day Saint. He was baptized by Parley P. Pratt. He was ordained to 70 by Apostle William Smith. So in 1890, Jane Elizabeth Manning James wrote to Apostle Joseph Fielding Smith requesting that she be allowed into the Salt Lake Temple. And she informed him that, quote, there was a colored brother, Brother Lewis, whom she had met. She's talking about Walker Lewis. And she wanted to marry him in, in the temple. After he was dead? Uh, no, th- this was her husband. She, oh, she, okay. She, and they, she wanted to marry uh, her husband, Walker Lewis, in, in the temple. And that was late enough that it was denied but he was somebody who had been ordained to the priesthood but after he was ordained to the priesthood he was not allowed to be sealed in the temple so we have kind of a a shift going on at that point there are many other blacks, uh, African Americans who who held the priesthood um, Samuel Chambers and his wife, Amanda, are are a wonderful story. They came to Utah in the 1870s after the Civil War. For 85 years, Samuel Chambers was a faithful member of the church. He was highly respected in Utah. He and his wife were converted in Mississippi, and they, they... moved to Utah from Mississippi right after the Civil War. So where did the shift happen? And the short answer is that there was a short shift that happened even before the Saints made it to Nauvoo. And that was that when, in 1832, There were rumors that the Mormons who were in Missouri were trying to persuade slaves to disobey their masters. And Missouri was a a border state in those days.
2: That was what uh, the whole idea of of burning Kansas was about, was the fact that, uh, you know, was Missouri going to be admitted as a slave state or a free state? So a lot of,
1: lot of conflict there, right? Correct. And, and there were many people in Missouri who did hold slaves. There, there were, of course, many who didn't. But this resulted in a newspaper article that was published against the church uh, saying that the church was trying to persuade slaves to rebel. And in response to that, there was an article published by W.W. W. Phelps, and the title of his article was Free People of Color, meaning what does the LDS Church think about people of color who are free? That's what the title means. And he was quoting from the laws of Missouri that talk about slavery and that allowed slaves to be held, but also allowed for free African Americans to live there. And after citing the applicable law in Missouri, W.W. W. Phelps said, we're not going to break the law and we're not going to cause any trouble. And the response, sadly, was that the Missourians responded even more harshly and said we just don't believe you and and that was the start of the huge Missouri problems that the LDS church had and they were ultimately expelled so the church had learned at that point that it was going to be criticized and that it could actually lead to persecution and death because of its stand in allowing African Americans to hold the priesthood and be treated like everyone else. They were gun-shy at that point. And, and I would think we have
2: to look into the mindset of Brigham Young and the Twelve that they were in a beleaguered situation. They had enemies on every side, and uh, they needed to protect the saints from from enemies of, of, of whatever whatever color that might be coming towards them.
1: Yeah, it's it's fascinating. You've talked about sort of a, a shift here, alluded to it. And in 1847, which is three years after Joseph Smith's death, talking about Walker Lewis, who, again, was an African-American who had been ordained to the priesthood, Brigham Young said this, quote, we have one of the best elders in African. close quote. He, he, Brigham Young likes this guy and thinks, thinks Walker Lewis is fabulous and he's a great elder. And then, not too many years later, just uh, five years later, in an about-face in Utah territory, Brigham Young publicly announces that African-Americans could not hold the priesthood. His explanation was based on this Mark of Cain idea, but again, he cited no revelation. And if you look at the underlying push here, you will see that this is fear of reprisals against the church, just as had happened in Missouri And in Kirtland, Ohio, before then, and in Illinois, the church had left the um, continental—well, not the continental, the the official United States territory and had moved outside of of the states to uh, U.S. territory, Utah territory. And there, Brigham Young and the Saints thought they would escape persecution, but that was not to be— And there were many writings in newspapers back east and clamoring to pass legislation that would greatly harm the church. And so Brigham Young, starting in 1852, wanted to sound like the rest of Christianity and publicly announced that African African Americans would not be allowed to hold the priesthood based on this Mark of Cain idea just like virtually all of the rest of Christianity. And by doing that, he hoped that the church would not be treated differently from the rest of Christianity. And then,
2: of course, in 1856, that was the first time the Republican Party uh, came into national prominence, John C. Fremont and their uh, campaign talked about the twin relics of barbarism polygamy and slavery and uh, it's like the, the saints were damned if they did and damned if they didn't so they had
1: <laughs> between a rock and a hard place that's exactly right so when we come back uh, let's talk some more about the whole context of African Americans and the priesthood and why the LDS Church really wasn't any different from anyone else.
0: This faith-affirming podcast is a production of Latter-day Radio for the enlightenment and illumination of its audience.
2: We're back here on Latter-day Radio with Martin Tanner. I'm Greg Girard. And we're going to continue the discussion of the progression of where we got to today from where we were back in the 19th century. And Martin, you were saying earlier that the whole concept of blacks and how they related to the rest of a membership of a church was, was different universally than it is today.
1: Yes, uh, and, and to recap, during Joseph Smith's lifetime, a number of blacks were ordained to the priesthood and served missions. And in 1847, after Joseph Smith's death, Brigham Young talked about great black elders in the church. And then five years later, he made an about face and publicly stated that African-Americans could not hold the priesthood. His explanation was the theory of the Mark of Cain. And what you're
2: saying is, I can recap. This wasn't the result of any revelation that anybody knows about, but rather of a policy that was basically there
1: for the survival of the saints. This was an idea that Brigham Young knew before he became a Latter-day Saint, and this was an idea that probably most converts to the LDS Church had heard before. Why? Because virtually... Every Christian denomination had that kind of an idea. Now, when I say that kind of an idea, not very many denominations had priesthood, but but the idea that African Americans could not hold positions of authority were everywhere the reason we have black baptist churches that were formed in the south is because freed blacks could not hold positions of authority in the regular baptist churches so they left and formed their own and that's why they have a today a southern
2: baptist church and a and the other mainline baptist church because Basically, of the whole schism over uh, slavery and eventually led to
1: the Civil War. Correct. There were black Methodist churches, black Presbyterian churches, uh, Lutheran churches, and so forth. And these were all formed by blacks who were not allowed positions of authority within those denominations. And so Brigham Young, not wanting the church to be persecuted, Anymore in 1852, wanted to move the church back into the same realm as other Christian denominations. There have been people who have talked about Moses, chapter 7, verse 22, in the Pearl of Great Price, but that really doesn't talk about priesthood. On October 10th of 1880, John Taylor became the third president of the church. He continued on with the policy that Brigham Young had set. He wasn't going to change the policy that that Brigham Young had for not authorizing blacks have the priesthood. And the same thing happened with Wilford Woodruff and with Lorenzo Snow, who became the fifth president of the church. And so on and so on. Until we get to David O. McKay. David O. McKay had this uh, fascinating statement that he made in 1970. uh, In January 18th of of 1970, to be specific. He said, quote, there's not now and there never has been a doctrine in this church, meaning the LDS church, that Negroes are under a divine curse. There is no doctrine in the church of any kind pertaining to the Negro. We believe that we have a scriptural precedent for withholding the priesthood from the Negro. But it is a practice, not a doctrine. And the practice someday will be changed. And that's all there is to it, close quote. So he's sort of telegraphing that he believes that eventually blacks will get the priesthood. And he was right. It was not very many years after that that it happened. It was during David O. McKay's uh, tenure as president of the church that The policy was changed so that not everyone with a dark skin, but only those of African descent, were denied the priesthood. That meant that Fijians and others who are very dark-complected were given the priesthood during the tenure of David O. McKay. And, And that sort of gets us to how the policy about African Americans not having the priesthood was was finally changed. And that happened, of course, under the tenure of Spencer W. Kimball. This is a great story, and people somehow have the idea that that this idea was forced upon the church or that it sort of uh, came out of nowhere, And, and that's really not the case. President Kimball spent years collecting information on the subject, from outside of the church from inside of the church he kept a binder on the topic and he had clippings of all kinds from photocopies from books from newspaper articles and from different sources and he made this issue one of great investigation and prayer in June of 1977 we're still a year before the policy was changed, a year before he asked apostles Bruce R. McConkie, Thomas S. Monson, who of course later became prophet, and Boyd K. Packer to each submit a memo on the basis for prohibition of priesthood for African Americans and how a change might affect the church. Now, it's fascinating. We we don't have the memos of, of two of the three, but we do have the one from Elder Packer, who, who was probably amongst the three by far the most strident against the idea. He had uh, numerous occasions publicly taken the position that, that blacks would not get the priesthood until the end of the millennium, and yet... Here he was after he did some additional research into this presenting a memo to President Kimball that said he didn't know of any scriptural impediments to making that change. Well, <laughs> uh,
2: I Anecdotally, I heard an interesting story when we were on our senior mission in Germany and someone had mentioned the fact that at a mission conference years years later, Uh, A missionary asked President Packer, Elder Packer at the time, uh, Elder Packer, you were there when that revelation came. Would you mind sharing with us what happened and your feelings towards it? And he was very quiet for a moment. And he said, I haven't even shared that with my wife. (laughs) And I think that's uh, profound because it was uh, sometimes we need to get kind of taken by the collar and shaken, and, and uh, perhaps that was, that was his uh, impression.
1: One of the things that um, happened after President Kimball started to really think about making this change, after he had the memos on the subject from Elder McConkey, from Elder Monson, and from Elder Packer, Was He started to research what they said and make other efforts towards research. And he also spent a lot of time praying about the issue. He got his own key to the Salt Lake Temple, and after the temple would close on many evenings, he would go in, lock the door, go to the upper rooms, and pray for divine guidance on a possible change. This happened for most of a year prior to the to the final announcement. And so when on June 1st in 1978 in the Salt Lake Temple, the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve, by revelation, ended the practice of African Americans not having the LDS priesthood, it was something that had taken a lot of research, a lot of prayer, a lot of study and as Greg, you just mentioned, was something that was described as a revelation that ended a policy or a practice.
2: And that's interesting, isn't it? It is. A
1: revelation that ended a policy. It, and, and when you think about it, I, hey, what's the word of wisdom? It's a revelation that ended a bunch of practices of people, you know, drinking coffee or tea, there, there was no revelation prior that said um, that was okay and now it was wrong. O- often we get revelations that end certain practices or that point us in a new direction, and that's what happened here with, um, with the 1978 revelation. Another fascinating point here, Greg, is that and, and I haven't um, been able to track down family members who um, have described what happened in the temple in great detail, but I have talked to a few. Uh, I, I have a friend who is a, a grandson of Elder Packer, and I also have a friend who is a great-grandson of of Elder McConkie, and they've all described this as a genuine revelation, and one that involved, in some cases, hearing a voice, an audible voice, that they described as being that that of, of Jesus telling them that this was the right thing to do, Others heard uh, a noise or a wind very much like in the times of of the Pentecost. Like the rushing of great waters. Exactly. And so those are the kinds of things that made those present believe genuinely that this was a revelation.
0: This podcast has been produced by Latter-day Radio. Visit latterdayradio.com for more information.